Two years ago, my wife and I rented a beach house down at the Outer Banks, and we do this almost every year. And at this time, Eli's about four, Isaac's a couple months old, and on a normal day, it could take five and a half, six hours to drive down to the Outer Banks in North Carolina. And you know, if you've got young kids, you make multiple stops, or you hit traffic on I-95 South, it can take up to eight hours. Like, it can take a lot longer. And so what we've discovered with two young kids, two boys, is that if the trip is going well... If they're peaceful back there, if they're quiet or if they're napping, we stop for nothing. You stop for nothing because you don't disrupt a smooth flow of a trip. And so what we've started doing is stocking water bottles up at the front. My wife and I enjoy drinking a good amount of water. And this particular trip, we didn't plan far enough in advance. What that means is the whole trip is going well. We end up doing about a three and a half hour stint where we don't stop, but we ran out of water. And so we arrive at the beach house and my mouth is as dry as the sand on the shore. And my wife looks at me and says, there's water bottles in the back of the car. Open up the trunk. I run back there. I grab the water bottle that I see and I take a nice big swig of refreshing laundry detergent. So this is the water, the laundry detergent that we use. And it's clear. And in my haste, I did not notice the difference between this laundry detergent and this water bottle. And so what happens, I take a big old mouthful of laundry detergent and all of a sudden my stomach turns, I get a headache and I start spitting this stuff out and it's going all over the place and I start rummaging around in the trunk for actual water. How often have you done that with your words? You've, in a situation, you've reached for something, a word, a response, a phrase, a comeback and you grab the wrong thing, the wrong thing comes out. How often have you done that? Well, last week we talked about how we need to transform our hearts. If we're going to have good words, we have to have a good heart because out of the heart, the mouth speaks. What I've realized in my life, and it's actually very frustrating, is that there's this gap between what I want to see happen and what actually happens. There's a gap between the desire for heart transformation and actually word transformation. So what do we do in that in between? What do we do when our words and our heart don't line up and we have this feeling, man, something's going to come out of my mouth that's unhelpful or unhealthful? What do we do? Well, James has something brilliant to share with us, something that stood out to me. Now, James is Jesus's brother. And you have to imagine growing up with a sibling like Jesus, that James had some choice words for his brother, right? Like, can you just imagine your sibling? coming up to you and saying, hey, I am God. I am the son of God. I am the Messiah, the anointed one. I'm going to deliver all of Israel. And he goes around and starts teaching people and amassing a following. You think you would have some choice words for your sibling, right? Like James is looking at his brother going, you are crazy. How much would it take for you to believe that your sibling is the son of God, the Messiah? It's just completely crazy. If you don't believe me, Mark actually has this amazing story that James and his family tried to keep Jesus quiet. Because everyone thought he was out of his mind. Well, the moment comes, Jesus dies. He's crucified and he's actually in the grave for three days. And then he rises to new life and everything changes for James. All of a sudden he's bought into the things that Jesus has said and has been doing. And he becomes a founder in the church. And he writes us this powerful letter. I'm going to begin in James 3. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Now, we need to stop because you may be saying, okay, I'm not a teacher. I'm not a religious teacher. James isn't talking to me. But what he's doing 
is he's setting the stage and he'll go on later in the letter and become more general with it. But he's saying your words have immense influence. Now, you may not be a teacher, but your words have immense influence. If you've ever had somebody come up to you and say, hey, when you said that, it was really encouraging or man, that tore me down. That hurt. And you're sitting there going, I don't remember saying that. Like, so the words that we say, even if we don't intend to, even if we don't say them with intentionality, with purpose, with meaning, they have incredible influence. Careless words still have an impact. We go on verse two. For we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man. Able also to bridle his whole body, that is, control his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at ships also. Though they are so large and driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder. Wherever the will of the pilot directs, so also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. James is saying that your tongue, although it's very small, has a huge amount of influence. That's why he talks about horses and boats, something small driving a whole community, a family, driving your friends. The words that you say can change the course of history. Did you know, on average, the tongue weighs about 70 grams? That's less than one pound. That's less than 1% of your body weight. And yet by your tongue, your whole body is held responsible. When you disrespect your boss, when you talk back to him, when you lie to him, when you undermine him verbally in the workplace, or you cause division in the workplace, what does he do? He doesn't fire your mouth. He fires the whole person, right? In a marriage, if you're constantly lying to your spouse or tearing them down verbally, they may get so frustrated and tired with you over years and years of being torn down verbally that what do they do? They eventually divorce your mouth, right? No, they divorce the whole person. Or if you've got a kid that disrespects you, what do you do? You don't put their mouth in timeout. You put the whole person in timeout, right? It is by your mouth that oftentimes we are held responsible. And James is saying that your mouth has incredible influence over your life. Now, James goes on and he gets a little wild in his language. He gets a little crazy and it really grabs our attention. This is what he says. How great a force is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell. James grabs our attention. It's like, holy cow. Okay, listen up. Okay, we've been talking about horses and ships, but now we're getting real. The tongue is a fire that is set on fire by hell. Can you imagine that? Like, James, what are you talking about? Well, today's message is called playing with fire. Because our words have the ability to burn others. They have the ability to burn others. Now, one thing that I realized is that fire is an amoral agent. Like fire on its own is neither good nor bad. But how we use it can either build people up or tear them down. They can be healthy or unhealthy. They can be helpful or unhelpful. Well, at 12 years old, my dad looked at me one summer and said, it's time to repaint the house. Time to repaint the house. Now, we had aluminum siding. What that meant is after years of, of weather and wear, the paint was kind of wearing off a little bit. It was coming off. It was, wasn't looking very good. If you've got a number of layers on it, it can start to peel off or flake off. And so what this meant was hours of work painting the exterior house, which for a 12 year old is just not very much fun, but he handed me something. So typically you can scrape, you can sand, you can work all day long trying to get a clean surface to repaint on, or as my dad did, 
he handed me a blowtorch. Can you imagine that, handing a 12-year-old a blowtorch? But he, he sets me up, and he says, okay, what we're going to do is we're going to heat up the paint. And you're going to begin to see it bubble up. Then you take a scraper and you scrape it off, and it comes off nice and easy. All these layers of paint, years of paint, come off nice and easy with the blowtorch. So he hands me this blowtorch, and I get to work, and I'm heating things up, and I'm scraping, and I'm, you know, I'm trying to see this paint bubble up, and I'm scraping it off, and all of a sudden, this blowtorch goes over two of my fingers. I don't remember how, but it goes over two of my fingers. Twelve years old. And I remember it seemed like time stopped. And then all of a sudden, that rush of pain registers in my brain. I look down and I see just two massive blisters on my fingers. And I'm just wrecked. Like I am screaming, I'm crying. I'm rushed inside, having cold water ran over my fingers, trying to get the burn to stop. That's what James is saying. Our words burn. They hurt people. What do we say when somebody's got and a particularly good verbal comeback, right? Oh, they got burned. When somebody gets knocked back on their heels by a statement somebody else does, oh, they got burned. Your words have the ability to burn. And that's what James is reminding us, that how we use our words can either bring life or bring death. They have the ability to burn ourselves and to burn others, and it's by our words that we are held responsible. Now, some of you may have caught this. And I've been, you know, kind of scratching your head over it. What does James mean when he says your tongue is set on fire by hell? What do you, what do you picture when you think of the word hell? For many of us, we can picture kind of this eternal torment, right? Life after death of suffering for those who, who don't do the right things. Or maybe you think of a street preacher or the hellfire and brimstone preacher or a little guy, pitchfork, whatever it is. For James, it's something very practical. It was actually something he could see in his day. See, the word that's used here by James for hell is actually the Greek word Gehenis, which is a transliteration of Hebrew, which refers to the Valley of Hinnom. It was a place that they could go to, they could see, and it was on the southeast side of Jerusalem. It was down this steep hill into a valley that was called Hinnom. Well, this valley has a long history within Israel. 800 years before Jesus comes on the scene, there are two kings, Ahaz and Manasseh, that went down in this valley and started offering sacrifices to the god Molech. And they get so wrapped up in this pagan worship, worshiping a god that wasn't the true god, Yahweh, Israel's god, that they actually go a couple steps further and they sacrifice their own children in fire. To God Molech. Now, this is one practice that God says, among all other practices that the nations do in worshiping their gods, this one is strictly forbidden within Israel's history. You are not to sacrifice your children. So the Valley of Hinnom becomes associated with a godless place, a place of God's displeasure, a place outside of God's presence. And 800 years later, in the time of Jesus and James, it takes on additional nuance. So this valley is a very easy place to push refuse from the city to push the trash from the city. They roll it down this hill and they set it on fire to keep down with disease and smell. So you have this kind of smoldering trash heap. And then Rome comes along and says, okay, those criminals that aren't worthy of a proper burial, we're going to throw their corpses into this valley because they don't deserve a burial. We're going to throw it down there and we're going to let it be burned with everything else. Now, why does James say this? 
Why does he connect our tongues with the valley of Hanom? Because too often, our tongue is associated with evil. It's associated with ungodliness. It's associated with everything that brings displeasure to God. And it has a place outside the city. It has a place outside of society because it tears things down more than it builds them up. What James is telling us is that our tongue too often is in conflict with who God created us to be and the way that he created us to interact with others. So how do we do this? James is telling us, with all his analogies, metaphors, his imagery, that he is writing wisdom literature. James 1.5 If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask of God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. See, James is telling us there's a difference between knowledge and wisdom. We can know something, but wisdom is all about knowing how to use what we know. Every situation calls for a different response. Every person calls for different words and different conversation. And that's what James is telling us. We have to use wisdom when it comes to our words because the words you use are the words you choose. So we must choose wisely. No one is exempt from that. As we're wrapping up today, you may be sitting there saying, okay, what do I do with all this? I've learned about my temperament. I've learned about the temperament of others. I realize I need to speak to their benefit. I need to speak grace-filled words. I also need to have a heart transformation. It seems like we're piling things up that are just very difficult. What do I do when I realize some unhelpful or unhealthful words are getting ready to come out of my mouth? What do I do in the interim between the desire of transformation in my heart that I want and the words that are actually coming out? What do I do? Well, there's three things. Three things I believe James wants to encourage us to do. First, we have to pause. We need to pause. Ephesians 4.29 says, let no evil come out of your mouth. It literally means to put a guard over your mouth. Don't let it proceed. That means stop it. Shut it down. I remember picking up my son from preschool at the end of the day, and I'm looking through the window of the classroom, and he is trying to wrap up a project, but the whole time he's talking. He's talking, he's talking, he's talking. The teacher's trying to talk over him, trying to get his attention, trying to get him to focus on what he needs to focus on so I can pick him up. And he is just talking, unaware of what in the world's happening. Finally, she gets to the end of her rope and says, zip it, just zip it. And I remember sitting there going, it bristled me a little bit. And I said, that that seems wrong. And then I'm like, okay, no, it fits. Because like he is just, he's just pouring out words and he's not listening. Well, that's what I started doing. Three years after seeing that, that vision is still stuck in my mind. And when I feel like my heart rate gets going, when I feel like, okay, I'm entering into tricky conversational territory. I know my relationship can either be helped or hurt by this conversation. I say in my mind, zip it, Brian, zip it. And that gives me just enough pause. Because I've realized that if I pause just enough, that oftentimes that moment passes. And it becomes a lot harder to say that thing that I probably shouldn't have said. It allows me to weigh not what I could say, but what I should say. And that's a huge difference between what I could say and what I should say. James 1.19 actually tells us this, to be slow to speak. We have to slow things down. Now, you may think that's really easy for a blue to slow things down. For a lot of us, it is. But what I've realized part of the time is that as a blue, I'm planning for these scenarios anyway. 
And that means I'm thinking of responses well in advance. I'm anticipating situations so that when I say the things that I say, that's actually pretty intentional. And they may be intentionally hurtful. I need to slow them down long enough to ask myself, what could I say versus what should I say? Blues also have a skill of controlling the conversation by our lack of words. I mean, controlling the, the room and the conversation by our mood and our silence. See, words are powerful whether they're poured out or they're, they're held back. Maybe as a red, you need to pause long enough to realize there's another person in the conversation. It's not just a task that needs to be accomplished, a decision that needs to be made, but there's a person that needs to be factored in. Or maybe you're a yellow. And it's slowing down just enough to say, okay, what was just said versus what am I going to say? Slowing down just enough. And if you're a green, you may be the temperament of calm and harmony. But too often, if somebody else in that conversation is angry or hurt or upset, that calm demeanor, those calm words that everything is going to be okay, can be perceived as indifferent or uncaring. See, the reality is no matter what temperament you are, the words that we use are the words that we choose. We need to pause slow enough, long enough to be intentional and wise with our words. Second, after we pause, we need to surrender. James 3, 7 says this, All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. Now, this verse incredibly frustrates me, and I didn't understand it for a long time. We've been talking for four weeks about controlling our words. And then James comes along and says, hey, you can't do it. Well, that's not very Christian-like of him, is it? You can't do it. There's no hope. It's fatalistic. It's determined. James says you can't do it. It's full of evil, of restless evil, full of deadly poison. Now, what in the world is he talking about? If you look back at that verse 7, it talks about reptiles and birds and creatures being tamed by mankind. What does that remind you of? It reminds me of the parallels in Genesis 2 of creation. God creates all these animals and the earth and the birds and all the fish in the sea, and he looks at mankind and he says, name them and tame them. Name them and tame them. Have authority over them. But there's something that God doesn't give mankind authority over. He doesn't give him authority over somebody else, another person. He doesn't tell him to name and tame humanity because that alone is reserved for God. We are under the authority, under the control, the ownership of God himself. And to say, okay, I'm going to get control of my whole life and my whole body and I'm going to tame it, I'm going to name it, means that we have authority over it, it means it's mine. And that is not a place that God gives us. If you don't believe me, look at what Jesus does. Jesus himself submits to this rule. John 12, John 14, throughout the Gospels, you see Jesus saying, I can only say the words that my Father God says. I can only do the things, the acts, the works that my God, my Father is doing in heaven. I can only say the things that my Father is saying. If God himself, Jesus Christ, has to submit, surrender his words and his life to God in that way, how much more do we? How much more do we? We have to surrender. If we're ever going to see a difference in our heart and our words, we have to surrender them to God and realize, okay, I ultimately can't have control of this. It's outside of my control. To get there, we have to pause long enough to say, God, I surrender my words. Give me wisdom. 
God, I surrender my words. Give me wisdom. Finally, the last thing we have to do after we pause and surrender is we have to pour. We have to pour out the right thing. See, on average, we speak about 15,000 words a day. We pour out 15,000 words a day, and these have a huge impact on the world around us. And too often, what I've realized is that in my haste, I grab for the words that are closest. Just like the laundry detergent, I grab for the words that are closest. And this grab-and-go mentality means that I don't slow down enough to think about, am I grabbing the right thing? Am I grabbing the right thing? Am I surrendering what I want to God? Am I choosing wisely the words that I pour out? Am I pouring out something that's going to hurt somebody? Or am I pouring out something that's going to give them life? See, James in our letter and Paul who writes Ephesians and Jesus in his life all point to one thing. We need to grow in wisdom. We need to grow in wisdom. And as we do, as we progress towards wisdom to maturity, we grow in the likeness of Jesus Christ and that transforms our words. Which piece do you need to focus on this week? Do you need to focus on pausing just long enough to let that moment pass by? Pausing long enough to say, okay, it's not what I could say, but what I should say that matters. Do you need to surrender your life, your heart, your words, your agenda, your temperament to God's control? Then finally, do you need to be more wise with the words that pour out of your mouth? Let James's words guide you this week as we think about how we have influence with our words and how we can have healthy and helpful words when we pause, surrender, and pour out life-giving words. Let's pray. God, we acknowledge all too often that the words that come out of our mouths are unhealthy and unhelpful. God, we ask that you begin to transform our hearts, but in the interim, that you would help us have control, that we would surrender our tongues and our hearts and our words to you, that we would pause long enough to ask what we should say, what you were telling us to say in the moment, and ultimately that our words that come forth might bring life to those around us. In Jesus' name, amen.